If you'll join me in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, this morning we will be looking at verses 2 through 7. As we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, if you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 982, page 982, Philippians 4, verses 2 through 7. title of our sermon this morning is Guarded Hearts and Minds, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are Rejoice, Anxious, and Thanksgiving. There's an old poem about being anxious. And it goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. As far as the robin and the sparrow saw things, they had a heavenly Father taking care of them. So what was the big deal? What was there to be anxious about? Well, in the West, uh, being anxious, having anxiety or anxiety-related disorders is at an all-time high, especially among teenagers. Between the years of 2005 and 2014, the number of teenagers reporting regular feelings of anxiousness, some to the point of being able to function productively and to even submit themselves to self-harm, has seen a 37% increase. 18% of the adult population is said to have a struggle with anxiety on various levels of seriousness. These people are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor on a regular basis. They are six times more likely to be hospitalized for psychiatric disorders. uh, 25% of all women and 20% of the overall adult population as a whole are currently taking some kind of anti-anxiety medication at least one time per month. One-fourth of the adult population. We live in the most advanced and most prosperous, most educated, most well-fed, most clothed, technologically progressive society that the world has ever known, and yet we are in what some mental health experts are calling an anxiety epidemic. What is going on? Well, there are several theories as to what's going on. One of the most popular ones as it pertains to teenagers is the emergence of things like social media and smartphones. The I generation is what they're coming to call the new generation, current teenagers on down. They're on the brink of the worst mental health crisis that the world has ever seen. Think about it. There is an instant, constant, minute-by-minute access to social comparison for all of us. And at a younger age, that social comparison is crippling. It has a far greater and far more devastating impact. Additionally, this generation is believed to, to be the most hovered over generation of children. Helicopter parents and all of their desire to make sure their children are well taken care of and loved and nurtured They're actually creating kids that are anxious and depressed because they're unable to cope on their own. And so they say things like, I can't even. You can't even what? They're unable to learn how to deal with adversity and trials and feelings of discomfort and and feelings of pain and frustration. 
So when you have a young person who's never made to sit in their room alone, disappointed and frustrated while they cry it out with a sore behind, and you throw a smartphone on top of that, and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter, what else is going on these days? How are we not all anxious beyond belief? We all would sink further into the abyss. All of us at some point have had feelings of anxiety. Some of you struggle with it on a regular basis, and some even are being treated for it by a doctor. Whenever anyone talks to me about their anxiety, the first thing I want to do is identify those things that make someone anxious. Are there certain situations? Is it because of money? Is it because of relationships? Is it because of people around you? What causes you to be fearful? What causes you to be anxious? Why are you nervous all of the time? And then, more importantly, we need to consider what God says about it all. What answers does the Bible provide to our anxiety? These verses we see, they're set up in such a way that they may seem like a little bit of a a random mix of ideas, seemingly unrelated exhortations, but at the center of it all, we will look at this very point, that it is Paul's exhortation that we've seen a few times already, that no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how anxious we may be, that we must rejoice. Are you anxious? He says, rejoice. And he provides a bit more as to an answer of how we deal with this issue of anxiety. There's a lot in here this morning, so we will take a look at these verses, and then we will look at them one by one. Let's begin reading in verse 2 of chapter 4, the book of Philippians. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, let's look at each of Paul's exhortations and consider how they work together. There's four exhortations here. The first one is is in verses 2 and 3. And Paul says, Christian... Strive to agree in the Lord and help one another to do so. Now, lest we've gotten to the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians with the assumption that maybe he found the perfect church, Paul brings that notion to a close right here. There are no perfect churches. And even godly people need to be corrected sometimes and help to work out their differences within the body of Christ. From this passage, what we learn is that we have two sisters in Christ. Euodia and Syntyche are their names, and they were faithful servants of the Lord. They were invaluable to the church. They served alongside Paul in all of his gospel labors while he was there. He makes it very clear that it is is 
these women that he's addressing as fellow believers in Christ. He writes that their names are in the book of life, and that's a very important affirmation. It teaches all of us something about the nature of a godly rebuke. You see, here Paul is taking the way of Christ. He's not being harsh with them. He's not being hard with them. He's not coming down on them with a mallet. It reminds me of that that precious description of Christ that we get from the Bible, that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. He will not break a bruised reed. That he's, he's gentle, and yet he's still correcting There's a lot to learn from how Paul addresses them here. He's he's certainly offering this rebuke. He has this correction to offer, but it's in the sweetest, most gentlest manner. This, This teaches us something in how we interact with one another. Well, what exactly is going on? We have this this little church in Philippi. Probably these two are some very strong women. He uses language that would have been used to generally describe someone in battle situations. He describes them as those who labored or, or battled. They battled side by side with me. They were striving. They were working together for the sake of the gospel. They weren't weak, namby-pamby women. These were strong-willed, full of conviction. They probably had some opinions about some things. They were get-after-it type of women who had every intention of doing everything they could to serve the church and get the gospel out into the world. They were gospel warriors, and that's a great thing. But, I'm taking a risk here, but hear me out. (laughs) I'm going to be out of town next week, so send your emails to Sam. If you have two very strong-willed women, and there happens to be a clash over how something is going to happen, I think we all might at least be able to imagine that that would be sort of difficult to work out at some point. Not saying any of us know anyone like that, but you could imagine. Think about it. They care deeply about their labors. They they want something to happen in a a way that they understand to be God-honoring, and they certainly know what way that is. And it just so happens that their way is not the same way as the other person. Not that it's right or wrong, it's just different, and my way happens to be better. And those who follow hard after Christ, as these women certainly did, and they do all they can to glorify God, they're going to have some tension. They're going to have some trouble in some of their relationships sometimes. Undoubtedly, the challenges of daily life, coupled with this this, this strong commitment and this desire to do it right and to get the gospel out and to build the church up and everything they had going on, it probably took a toll on these excellent women from time to time. We have no idea what the problem was, but we do know there was some kind of falling out of sorts, and they were no longer of the same mind. So these women, who were once unstoppable as a pair, they were now at odds. And and certainly contrary to anything they would have wanted, they were jeopardizing the witness of the very gospel for which they had fought so hard to bring to the world. 
Well, news of this reached Paul. More than likely, the news came to Paul through Epaphroditus. Remember, Epaphroditus was with Paul from the church at Philippi to minister to him, but had fallen ill and was about to go back. And he was probably bringing this letter back with him when he went. So maybe that's... Paul is wise. He probably, back in chapter 2, is when he mentioned Epaphroditus. And so... Remember, he told them, hey, receive him back as a brother. Be gentle with him. He came here. He served me best he could. He fell ill. Receive him back well. He's a good brother. But he did that early, maybe in part so that by chapter 4, when he mentions these women's names in the letter, and they're staring really hard at him for saying something, and they hear their names come up in the letter, he can say, hey, remember what Paul said about me? (laughs) Take it easy, ladies. Uh, For whatever reason, at this point, he was writing about everything else and he provides them. He sort of pauses everything else he's doing and he provides them with this gentle rebuke here. And his exhortation is literally that they are to think the same thing in the Lord. Now, of course, no matter how gentle Paul is here, no matter how gentle the rebuke is, came across, there's no doubt that as this was read out loud in the church, these ladies swallowed hard as every eye turned toward them. But Paul didn't stop with them. He turns to the rest of the church and he says, hey guys, you have a responsibility here. You need to help them sort it out. And so the rebuke goes to the whole body. Now, there's some speculation here. Scholars need stuff to write about to keep their jobs. So there's a lot of stuff written about who the third party is that Paul may be addressing here in verse 3? Here's the answer. Nobody knows. I could have written that paper very quickly. It may have been an individual. It might have been the elders of the church. It may have been the entire church. It could have been Luke. We don't really know, but the duty is clear that is given. Help these women. And it's safe to assume that they'd probably done the godly thing. They probably tried to meet together and talk it out, but they weren't able to come to an agreement. Most of the time, those kinds of interactions end well. Every now and then, it makes the situation more difficult. They needed a referee to enter into the conversation that they might begin to think like the Lord, agree with the Lord in this once again. Now, I will tell you this in light of this situation. If you ever come to me or any of the elders talking about something someone else in the church did or didn't do that you have an issue with, what is the first thing you're going to hear from us? Go talk to them. Take the log out of your eye and go and talk to them. Have a conversation. And if there's still a problem after that, then come talk to us and we we'll all get together and try to work it out. 99% of the time, that personal conversation is going to solve the problem. However, there are times when you may need the church's prayer. You may need the corporate wisdom of others. There may be an issue that isn't a matter of one being right or the other one being wrong. There may be some principles of wisdom that you need help working through and applying, some compromises that need to be made. There are so many factors involved sometimes. And if we're, if we're too close to a situation, sometimes we have a hard time sorting out those details. And so we should get help. And that's what Paul's calling on the church here to do. Now, we don't know if the problem was ever resolved in the end, but I would assume having their names mentioned in the letter in front of the whole church got their attention. They probably got together 
and worked it out pretty soon afterwards. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I have an obligation to do what we can to maintain peace with one another. I didn't say we have to agree on everything, but we ought to try. We should try to agree. And we, when we don't agree, we still need to have the heart of thinking the same thing as the Lord, as Paul said here. Which, at the very least, it means that we have a desire to live at peace with one another. Doing everything else Paul has exhorted us in this letter. Living for the advantage of others over myself. Remember, all of chapter 2 is about that. Yes, I want us all to agree. We should all want that. But... That won't always happen. Sometimes others are going to disagree with us, and we need to die to ourselves if that is the case, especially if it's not uh, some kind of issue where there's sin involved. If it's just wisdom or preference or a different way of doing things, a lot of times it's okay to acknowledge that we may not be on the same page about something, but we can work together still for the sake of the gospel. That's really important that we're able to do that. That's how we can have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ that may look, uh, that may look like uh, something like our confession uh, says. Um, that we know there are things that we won't see eye to eye on, and yet we have a foundational unity in the gospel. There are a few things that we're going to disagree on. And we can talk about those things. We can debate those things in a healthy way. We may need to be in different churches sometimes because of those things, but I surely won't deny the fact that you're my brother or sister in Christ. And so we're going to pray for them. That's why we pray for other churches here every Sunday. That's why even in our own community, we want other churches to do well. I want other Christians to know the gospel, to hear the preaching of the gospel, and we should be thankful when they're in good Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches and the Lord is blessing them in our community. Listen, Redeemer Baptist Church cannot minister to everybody in Effingham County, so praise God that there are other faithful churches around here who are doing a great job. We might not do everything the same way. There are things we may not agree on. But if they get the gospel right and they are faithful to proclaim it, we need to celebrate that and give thanks to God and pray for and encourage them along the way. Likewise, if someone comes here from another church, one of the first things I want to find out is why are you here? You're welcome, but why? Why are you leaving? Why are you coming here from somewhere else? They're certainly within their rights to do so. There's nothing saying a person can't leave one church and go to another. That's their decision they need to make before the Lord. But I want to know, is there conflict? Is there division there? If so, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to that pastor. I want to see if I can encourage you to go and make things right before you, before you leave there, if at all possible. Now, it's possible they're leaving a bad situation. It may be abusive. It may be legalistic or or cultish, or something, some other kind of nightmare like that, so they just need to get out. But if it's a faithful church, and there was some kind of conflict, and maybe someone's feelings were hurt, something not done exactly the way they wanted to do it, well, I'm going to press on that person to go and work it out first. doesn't mean you need to stay there. Maybe, maybe the best thing for the sake of peace is that you, you go somewhere else. But if you need someone else to help in that, fine. 
But brothers and sisters, we have an obligation whenever possible to live at peace with one another. And that's not just in this room. That is our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's people. That is the church. Because the reality is we have, you know, 70, 80, maybe 90 years here on this earth. Most of us. Uh, We have a very long time to live together for eternity. It's not going to go away. We need to work at living at peace with one another here and now. We need to strive to agree in the Lord. We need to be available to help others to do that as well. Well, the second thing follows that. Paul exhorts us in verse 4. Christian, you have every reason to rejoice at all times. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because this is the third time that Paul has pointed us to this in Philippians, but it is one of the main reoccurring themes for Paul in this letter. Isn't it interesting? This isn't Paul writing while he's sitting by a pool on a private island, sipping a Mai Tai and eating caviar, as nice as that sounds. Paul is locked up in a nasty prison chained to guards against a wall, dependent on others to provide for him his food and his drink, and he had no sense of when he was going to be released, if at all. He didn't know what the future held. But what is his counsel? We've seen it several times now. No matter what the situation is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much you want out of your circumstances, remember this, the Lord is in it. And it may not seem like it, it may not feel like it, It may be one of the more painful times in your life. It may be the greatest amount of suffering you've ever endured. But all of it brings about the end that God has desired. All of it brings about the end that He has planned and He has determined for His glory, for the good and building up and strengthening of His church. Therefore, you can rejoice. The Bible is abundantly clear all throughout It is the will of God for us to rejoice in God at all times. But all of us probably are thinking of that command and immediately conclude, well, I can't do that. Always rejoice in the Lord. Always how? Well, we have to recognize that this isn't a command that is accomplished by an act of human will. It is only accomplished by faith in Jesus Christ. We can and we must rejoice always because no matter what our circumstances, therefore our ultimate good. And the Lord is using them, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to conform us to the image of Christ, making us more like Him. And so we rejoice in our circumstances no matter what they are because we know those circumstances are being used by God to make us more like Christ. That's why we rejoice in our circumstances. So unsaved people cannot rejoice in God or pray to God or give thanks to God in the way that a Christian does. Religious people may sometimes pray when they feel like it or give thanks when things are going well, but Christians are called to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. This is not the believer's response because we are impervious to life's dangers and toils and snares. It's our response to life because we are in Christ Jesus and we want to be made more like Christ Jesus and we thank God for all the ways that He's working to make us more like Christ Jesus. As Jesus concluded in the Upper Room Discourse, He gave this provocative um, 
explanation for these final instructions that he gave to the disciples. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The Lord wants his disciples to live in peace with one another, to live in peace of heart. But true peace is not absent of negative, painful, or difficult realities. The fact is that the disciples of Christ will have tribulations in this world. We are not exempt from trouble. No, in fact, following Jesus will bring faith-testing, soul-burdening, life-threatening pressures that are going to press on us from every direction. Sickness, heartbreak, persecution, rejection, disappointment, loss. We will even face death itself. And yet, we can rejoice in the midst of it all because Christ has overcome the world. So if you think about this in light of the first exhortation, we are to agree in the Lord as we are able. And our ability to do that in any way is a huge reason for us to rejoice in the Lord. Just think about the people sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you right now. Outside of an incredible work of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, making us new creations in Christ, there is no chance, given different circumstances across this room, that we would be gathered together somewhere else and love each other and have close relationships with one another and serve each other and give of our lives and our resources for one another. We wouldn't do that. But in Christ... We are of one heart in our desire to love and honor and worship and glorify God, and that means that we have agreement far more than we don't. We can rejoice in that. We can rejoice that the Lord allows us to live at peace with one another. It's truly a marvel, especially as we live in a day and time where it seems that there's there's very little for us to agree on at all. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. Rejoiced in Christ because of what He has made us and has given us to be together. We have much to be thankful for. Third exhortation, verse 5. Christian, you ought to be a reasonable person. This is some wonderful counsel here. Simple, straightforward, completely necessary. Some translations say gentleness or meekness. You know, like Jesus... (laughs) That's what he's saying. Be more like Jesus. That is always good counsel. There's never anything you're going to hear and and be like, no, you know what? That worked for him, but I think I know better. Now, we certainly live like that sometimes, but I hope at least we have some awareness that it's probably going to be our best avenue of approach in life is to try to do what Jesus did. So he says, be gentle, be meek. I like how the ESV translates it. Be reasonable. It's easy, straightforward counsel. Be reasonable. I love that Paul just takes a moment and says, hey, listen, you guys need to be reasonable. You need to deal with one another in such a way that you're not making everything into this big, giant, painful issue. Here's the deal. It's often unreasonableness that causes anxiety. Does that make sense? If we're unreasonable and make everything into a black and white issue and everything rises to the same level of importance as everything else, we're going to be anxious about everything, aren't we? 
Years ago, before we had kids, Felicia and I owned a condo in Savannah. And just as I was getting out of the army, I was entering into ministry, and I had this great idea that what I really needed to do in order to get to know all of our neighbors that we lived around in close quarters was to be on the board of the Homeowners Association. It was a smart idea. So I volunteered, and I get into this thing, and it was me and three retired women, and they made me the president. And I thought, great, I'll get to know people very quickly. I'll work with them to solve all of the big issues of our community, improve our property value, make sure that everyone's happy and taken care of. But wouldn't you know it? It doesn't really work out that way. Did you know that there are people who walk around neighborhoods with their little yappy dogs to try and find their neighbors that are violating the homeowners association rules so that they can report them to the president of the HOA? That's their purpose in life. That's actually a thing that people do. So all hours of the day, I was getting emails, I was getting phone calls, I was even getting knocks at my door for things like people walking around on October 1st to see whose license plate had expired on their car in September, and they were parked in our parking lot with an expired license plate that needed to be dealt with, or getting very lengthy emails to tell me that their neighbor's car leaked oil in a parking spot, or the lawn company always trims the bushes in front of my place, but this time they didn't. Needless to say, I didn't want to know my neighbors anymore. I wanted to move and never turn back. But there's a thing, that's a problem. (laughs) When you think that cracking the case of someone's car registration expiring the day before is to the same level of importance as the national debt, you're going to be an anxious person. Let me tell you, that's not reasonable. Knocking on someone else's door... A volunteer with good intentions, mind you. I'm not bitter. I've dealt with this. It was a while ago. But knocking on someone else's door to tell them that you won't talk to your downstairs neighbor because during the daylight hours, their stereo's loud enough for you to hear it a little bit, so you're not going to talk to them, but you want you to talk to them. That's not reasonable. You're going to be anxious all the time. Everything is turned into a life or death matter. And Paul is saying, hey, look, life is so much easier if you're just reasonable. Are you a reasonable person? Well, of course you think you are. Everyone thinks you are. But would other people, people who you you regularly associate with, do they think you're a reasonable person? If not, why not? If you're a person who's regularly anxious, I want you to think about your interactions with other people. What are they typically marked by? Are people afraid to bring up any issues with you if they think you might disagree and they're, conf- they're afraid to maybe confront some problem or even sin in your life because they assume you're going to respond in a way that is unreasonable because of past interactions you've had with them? If so, you're not a reasonable person. And you're probably going to be anxious. Being reasonable is having a spirit of being gracious and kind and being able to put up gently with all that is unpleasant in other people and circumstances. This goes all the way back to chapter 2. Dealing with other people in such a way, again, that we're dying to ourselves, living for their advantage and not our own. Striving to agree with one another means that there will be times when we have to put aside our own preferences. 
It means that we will have to try to see some things from the perspective of others. It means we will have to try to live in such a way that our immediate assumption isn't that we are right and everyone else who disagrees with us is wrong. And it means that sometimes we're going to have to be humble enough to say, my opinion is just that, my opinion. The more important thing here is that we are unified and that we are loving one another and there isn't a fissure in our relationship. And to an unreasonable person, that very proposition sounds unreasonable. It's the most reasonable thing we can do, though. It's the only way we can live together in peace and unity as a church. If we aren't willing to continually put our desires to death, we will never have peace. We will never have unity. We will always be anxious. And notice how he says it. He says, he says let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other words, that's your reputation, that you're a reasonable person. If someone is asking someone who knows you well to describe you, what are they going to say? If they're going to give you a description and someone says, well, are they reasonable? How are they going to answer that? (laughs) No. Or yes. Yes, they're a reasonable person. So that is what we want others to not only assume about us, but to say about us, that that's our reputation. That we don't have a reputation that if people would just learn that I'm always right and they need to agree with everything that I say is perfect, that's reasonable, right? But we all have that attitude at times, and what does it do? Well, it gets to the heart of our final exhortation in our text this morning, verses 6 and 7. Christian, do not be anxious, be prayerful. Do not be anxious. Be prayerful. There are actually three instances where Jesus says not to be anxious, all in Matthew chapter 6. He said, in verse 25 of Matthew 6, he said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. In verse 31, he says, so do not be anxious. And in verse 34, he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And so Paul is just repeating what Jesus himself said had said, do not be anxious about anything. And just like the command to rejoice in all things, we're very quick to step back from this command and say, well, thank you, Paul, for this exhortation. I want you to know it's a lot easier said than done. I can't just will myself to stop being anxious. And in fact, the harder I try, the more difficult it seems to do. But praise God, he doesn't leave us simply with an exhortation to stop it. He gives us a remedy. How? He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. True Christian prayer is first and foremost filled with thanksgiving. It's the posture of grace. And so at the root of your prayer must be thanksgiving for what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. It is by grace alone that we are new creations in Christ. It is at the heart of the Christian that we are thankful that Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live, fulfilling the entirety of the law on our behalf. It is at the heart of a Christian that we are thankful that Jesus died the death that we deserved on the cross, taking upon himself the full wrath of the Father, that we need not suffer and endure the judgment of God in hell for eternity. 
It is at the heart of a Christian that we are thankful that Jesus was raised from the dead to new life, that we need not worry about life beyond the grave, but can have hope for an eternity with Christ. And so this is at the heart of our prayer as Christians, trusting that we are in God's hands, that He is in control, that we are thankful that we can just sit back in Him and not have to do everything on our own. Now, of course, we know that whatever we bring to God in prayer, He already knows, so why are we doing that at all? What's the point? The point is that prayer isn't about God, it's about us. When we bring our hearts before God, when we present our requests to God, when we, when we bring before Him the things that make us anxious, we begin to work through those things in our own hearts. We begin to cast our cares on the Lord, and we're declaring exactly what our hearts need to hear. We're declaring that our dependence is not upon the perfection of our circumstances, but on the power and love and grace and mercy of our Lord. So Paul's answer to anxiety is to pray. And as we pray, to do so with thanksgiving in our hearts, and it is through that thanksgiving that we are reminded of who God is and what God has done in Christ. And so what is the result that is given? He gives us a result of all of this. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's incredible, isn't it? The result is the peace of God. The peace that God Himself possesses and gives. It's the peace that Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's a peace that offers, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, far more than all we can think or ask. And it's the peace that will guard our hearts and our minds. That's important how he says all of this. Because our anxiety, our anxious moments in life are all coming from our hearts and our minds. They're coming from the essence of how we think about things and people and situations. Rational people with souls, we all are. We feel, we interact with our circumstances and people all around us and with our God above. We need protection. So when we get anxious, instead of our hearts being laid out and damaged, through prayer, the Lord protects us and gives us peace. And so he says, tell me what's on your heart. Lay it all out before me and my word, and the power of the Spirit will minister to that anxiety. And I will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. And so, brothers and sisters, let us strive to live in agreement with one another. Let us rejoice in the Lord always as reasonable people, without being anxious but with thanksgiving, presenting our requests to God. These commitments will elevate the unity and life of the church and surely will build the church of Christ against which the gates of hell shall never, ever prevail. 